Hey, if you guys have your Bibles, please open those up to Psalm chapter 13. Uh, that's where we're going to be tonight. And what we're going to do, we're just going to work verse by verse uh, through this just incredible passage uh, of Scripture. And we're going to unpack its meaning and apply it um, to our lives. And so before we do that, um, just to give you kind of some background of uh, the book of Psalms. I love the Psalms. I love the Psalter. Uh, just the authors are so real about the pain and the suffering. I mean, also the joys that we just have in the experience of life. And so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about um, tonight. Uh, originally, uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, uh, and the Hebrew title for the book of Psalms actually means praises. So the word Psalms in Hebrew actually means praises. So it's really interesting because the Psalter was essentially the hymnal for Old Testament uh, or for Israel in the Old Testament. And so whenever Israel would gather corporately together in order to sing the praises of God, they would sing uh, psalms from the Psalter. And there's different kinds of psalms, just like we have different genres of music, there's different genres of psalms. You have uh, psalms of thanksgiving, you have psalms uh, about the king of Israel, um, psalms about the, the messianic king, uh, the true and better David, King Jesus, who was going to come. Uh, you've got psalms of, of thanksgiving, um, you've got psalms also of an interesting category, Psalms of Lament. Uh, about 40 plus psalms in the book of Psalms are about lament. And that's really, really interesting that there would be 40 plus psalms that are about sorrow and sadness and the pain that we experience in life. Uh, and I think, it's, I think that's fascinating um, because it's relatable. It's not this pie in the sky. It's not this far off thing that we can't relate to. The psalms are real. And I think it's so interesting because most of the songs uh, that we typically listen to, most of the songs that, that you and I maybe listen to in our cars or maybe that we even sing during church, even tonight, the songs that we got to sing, they were joyful, they were upbeat, they were fun to listen to and fun to sing, they were uh, joyful to praise God with. But uh, a number of years ago, uh, one theologian named Carl Truman, he asked this really provocative question, and it's a good question. He asked this, he said, what can miserable Christians sing? That's a good question. He said, what can miserable Christians sing? And it was actually the title of an article that he wrote, but he noted in this article, he said that it's almost as if our songs are exclusively happy, as if that's the only emotion that followers of Jesus are allowed to feel. But it's more than that. Uh, Truman said this in his article, he said, quote, on why uh, we don't typically use the Psalter and why we don't typically sing the songs um, in our worship gathering. He said this, quote, I have an instinctive feel that it has more than a little to do with the fact that a high proportion of the Psalter is taken up with lamentations, with feeling sad, unhappy, tormented, and broken. In modern Western culture, these are simply not emotions which have much credibility. Sure, people still feel these things, but to admit they are a normal part of one's everyday life is tantamount to admitting that one has failed in today's health, wealth, and happiness society. If one does admit to them, one must neither accept them nor take any personal responsibility for them. One must blame one's parents, sue one's employer, pop a pill, or check into a clinic in order to have such dysfunctional emotions soothed over in one's self-image restored. He wrote that a number of years ago, but it's so true. We don't have a category for sadness. When we experience anything outside of joy and happiness, we immediately assume that there is a, a deeper issue, and there is, 
but we run to the, run to the wrong solutions. And that's exactly what uh, Truman points out in his article. But I think that you and I can agree. There is nothing like human pain and sorrow and suffering that causes us to doubt God's goodness. There is nothing like sorrow and pain and suffering that causes us to doubt God's goodness and even his presence in our lives. And so what this psalm is going to teach us tonight, the title of it is simply this. The title of tonight's message is simply, How to Move from Despair to Joy When Suffering. And it's not a pipe dream either. Like, that is a real attainable goal. Because what this psalm is going to teach us tonight is simply this. And so if you're taking notes, this is a one-sentence summary of exactly what the Lord is going to teach us in this passage tonight. That it's this, a resolve to trust God, to trust in God's character, produces endurance and joy when suffering. A resolve to trust in God's character produces endurance and joy when suffering. And that's what we're going to see. Because in this psalm, uh, King David wrote this psalm, and he is suffering. This is a personal prayer that he wrote out to the Lord his God. And we're going to see some of that So uh, as we walk verse by verse through it. So if you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and open those up to Psalm 13 if you haven't already. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, um, there should be a Bible under the chair uh, around you. And we put the page number up on the screen as well. So Psalm chapter 13, um, starting in verses 1 and 2. David writes this. He said, How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? And so this psalm, it really moves into three different sections. The first section that we see in David's prayer is this, the despair of circumstances. We see the despair of circumstances. Because if if you're new to Bible study, or maybe you've been studying the Bible for a long time, uh, the reality is whenever you're studying any passage of Scripture, if you see any repeated phrase over and over again, it's important to highlight that, because the author is trying to emphasize something to you. So four times we see this repeated phrase. David says, how long, how long, how long, how long? So this shows us at least, really at least two things. It shows us, number one, that David is suffering. Number one, it shows us that David is suffering. And number two, it shows us that David's been suffering for a really long time. Because he repeats the phrase, how long, over and over again. I mean, you can hear the pain in his voice. This is a personal prayer that he's praying to his God, and you can hear his pain. It's as if day after day and night after night, experiencing nothing but misery, nothing but the difficulty of his circumstance, David feels like the God who has saved him, the God who has called him, the God who has anointed him, is distant. He's in pain and he's suffering. He says, will you forget me forever? He says, will you hide your face from me? And basically what that language is saying is basically this. John Calvin, in his commentary on the Psalms, he said this. He said, uh, when we are for a long time weighed down by calamities, and when we do not perceive any sign of divine aid, This thought unavoidably forces itself upon us that God has forgotten us. That's so true. That's so true. Whenever we go through an extended period of time of suffering, we feel like God has forgotten about us. 
We feel like he's turned his face away. We feel like he doesn't uh, remember us, that he doesn't care for us. It causes us to doubt his goodness and even his presence in our lives. Because when David says, uh, will you forget me forever and how long will you hide your face? That's the language of the Old Testament of blessing. Uh, it's the language of nearness and the language of concern. Uh, you might remember, uh, as the Israelites were going through the desert, as they were going through the wilderness, uh, Aaron was commanded to bless the people of God. We saw that in Numbers chapter 6, that he said, uh, the Lord's face, uh, may, or the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. That's the language of blessing. Um, and y'all, the reality is this. If anyone knew what it was like to be blessed by God, if anyone knew God's nearness and his presence and his love, it was David. David knew those things so well. Just to give you a kind of rundown of his life, David was sovereignly chosen by God among his brothers in Psalm or in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. David was used in 1 Samuel 17 to strike down Goliath. Uh, David was saved numerous times from King Saul, his best friend Jonathan's dad, who tried to kill him. He was saved from him numerous times in 1 Samuel 23. Uh, he conquered armies of Philistines and armies uh, of enemies of God's people uh, in 2 Samuel 5. And David himself was in covenant with Yahweh God that God was going to take one of David's descendants and put him on the throne of Israel forever, which you and I know that man today as Jesus Christ the Messiah. This man was blessed. If anyone knew God's personal presence and God's love and God's nearness, y'all, it was David. And not only that, if that doesn't convince you, God used David to write scripture. Like that in and of itself is is mind-boggling, that God would use David to write scripture. And this author of scripture says that he feels far from God. So if you're a longtime saint or if you're a new believer, take heart. You don't, you don't outgrow suffering and you don't outgrow the feelings that come with it. It's okay to experience those feelings. It's what you do with those feelings next that really says a lot about where you are in your walk with Jesus. But David, he knows what God's personal blessing is like, but yet we find him here in this place of sorrow and we could even say to an extent, to an extent depression. David's hurting. He's hurting. And then look at, look at verse two. Look at the next two how longs. He says, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? So that phrase, how long shall I take counsel in my soul? David's essentially asking this. If we were to give a more modern translation, David is saying this. I've looked every direction. I've searched out every path and I can't escape despair. Like, like how long, how long can I keep going into dead ends and still coming out with the same outcome that God feels distant and I am hurting? Despair, and we can all agree on this, that despair is like an inescapable prison that we in our own power cannot get out of. Despair is like an inescapable prison. From whatever the circumstances are, y'all, despair feels like a prison. And we feel like it's prisoner. And we feel like no matter what we do, we can't get ourselves out of it. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can't save our own selves. Despair is a prison. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm a very curious guy. And so I Google almost everything. And so I, I don't know, one day I got on this kick where I just wanted to read about prison escape stories or failed prison escape stories. Uh, I, I, read, I read this one story. Uh, there was this, there's guys in New Zealand and they wanted to bust their best friend out of prison. 
And so what they did is they went to the store and they bought this giant Snoopy dog costume. And so they were gonna, their plan was to go into the prison, put the costume on, get their friend in the costume, and walk out in this giant Snoopy outfit. They did not make it. They were not successful. But not for the reason you think. They, they went to the wrong prison. They didn't even make it to the right place. So that was a failed attempt. Um, and then a couple of years back, there was a guy uh, in the state of Missouri. Weird things happened in the state of Missouri. This guy, his name was Lorenzo Pollard. Uh, and Lorenzo Pollard was serving uh, a sentence in jail. I can't remember for how long, um, but he wanted to break himself out of prison. And so what he did, uh, they had wooden chairs that were in the jail cell um, and in the gathering area for the inmates. And so what he did is he broke a couple wooden chairs, he took some bed sheets, and he made nunchucks. Because he was going to try to fight his way out of prison with these homemade nunchucks that he made in his prison cell. Needless to say, he was not successful. He was taken right back to his cell. But, but it's a reality. Despair is like that. It's a prison that we feel like we can't escape. And on a more real note, uh, so I am Generation Z, in case you were wondering. That's my generation. Uh, and one study uh, of a thousand uh, Gen Zs who were surveyed, one in five of us see a secular therapist for mental health-related issues. And to take it a step further... Of that 1,000, 57% of us take some form of medication, uh, typically in the form of antidepressants. Of 1,000 Gen Zs, over half of those, 57%, take some form of medication, typically antidepressants. And if that doesn't convince you that despair is like a prison, that we have no idea how to escape, in 2021, um, of the 7,100 suicides uh, that were reported, or of the of the total amount of suicides that were reported in the United States, 7,100 of those were 10 years old to 24 years old. Despair is a prison that we cannot escape on our own. And my generation is realizing that significantly fast. And it's no surprise, too, that in 2021, the same year that 7,100 of all reported suicides were among Generation Z, 10 to 24-year-olds, uh, bookstores across the nation saw a 25% increase in, can you guess which genre? The self-help category. You walk into Barnes & Noble, the biggest section you're going to find is the self-help section. Y'all, this world is starving for a way to get out of despair because we're broken and we have no idea what to do with it. People are dead in sin, far from God, and they have no idea what to do with their pain and with their suffering. Even Christians, oftentimes we don't know where to go with our pain and suffering. Because I've heard this numerous times where we try to pray, but nothing ever happens. But y'all, the reality is this. Despair cannot be solved by anything in us. Because the problem and this is, this is a real moment. The problem is us. We are fractured, broken people. Apart from Christ, we are dead in sin, and we deserve eternal separation from God, which Scripture calls hell. And the reality is, we can do nothing to fix that in and of ourselves. The solution cannot arise from where the problem originated. And we're going to get to the solution in a moment 
But I want to look at the final how long in verse 2. It says, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? So David, he gets a little bit more specific with what his circumstance is. Because up until that point, we weren't really sure what David was going through. Uh, But in the last line of verse 2, he says, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? So just some historical background. You and I don't know when David wrote this psalm. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David was a little bit vague in his prayer in terms of what exactly was going on. But uh, we do know that David, David's life was no cakewalk. His life was not easy by any stretch. And you might be new to Bible study, you might be a brand new Christian, you might not be familiar with the life of David. Let me tell you, he knew what it was like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He knew what it was like to suffer. Just to kind of give you a survey of maybe, I just gave you a survey of the blessings in his life. Let me give you a short survey of the things that he struggled with in his life. The things that he experienced. David's best friend, Jonathan, his dad was King Saul, the king of Israel. And whenever whenever God chose David to be the next king, Saul hated David and tried numerous times to kill him. Imagine seeing your best friend after that, after his dad tried to kill you. Like, that's awkward. That's uncomfortable. But you imagine this too. So David, uh, even at one point when he was running from King Saul, he ended up in this cave uh, and he ended up uh, over, in, uh, over in this other country that was far off from Israel. And he had to act like a madman, pretending to foam at the mouth so that way the king of that land would let him go before King Saul found out he was there. An even darker turn, David's own son Am- Amnon raped his own sister Tamar. And then Amnon was murdered by David's other son, Absalom, who contracted out a couple hitmen to come and execute his son, or his brother. And to make matters worse, Absalom tried to kill David and tried to take his throne. David had a messed up family. David experienced pain and he experienced suffering. And so we don't know who the enemy is. We don't know if it's Saul or Absalom or the Philistines or whoever it is. But that's not the point of the psalm. The point is that for David and so often for like you and I, when we experience despair and suffering, God seems distant. God seems silent. And so often, y'all, we fall into the trap that we think our perception of our life is reality. We think that the way things are, the way that we perceive things is how things actually are. We're so tempted to interpret God's goodness by our circumstances, when in reality, we should interpret our circumstances through the filter of knowing that God is good. In Psalm 119.105, you guys know this verse. He says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Y'all, notice what that verse does not say. It does not say, my feelings and my experiences are a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's not what that verse says. That word says, or that scripture says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And what that means for you and me is we need to interpret our circumstances through the lens of scripture, not through the lens of experience. Because if we have an experience that doesn't match up with what the word of God says, the word of God isn't what needs to change. It's our understanding of our circumstances. So not circumstances, not feelings, not emotions, but God's word. And I think what's critical about David in this psalm is where he turns to next. Because in verses 1 through 2, he expressed that God feels far and that God feels distant. And let me say, if you're in that spot right now, that is okay. It's just not okay to stay there. 
Because as we get down into verse 3, I want you to look at this with me. So David turns in his prayer. He's talking to God and and he's asking these questions. How long? How long? How long? And then David says this in verse 3. He says, look and answer me. Oh, Yahweh, my God, give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says I have overcome him and my adversaries rejoice that I am shaken. So we just moved from the despair of our circumstances to now we're moving into the petition for endurance. David just moved from the despair of his circumstance to the petition for endurance. And so think about how strange this is. Verses 1 and 2, David was talking about how God feels distant. But then in verse 3, he's calling on that same God to come to his aid. So you know what that communicates to us? That David knows that how he feels is not what's actually true. He might feel like God is far and that God is distant, but the reality is that God is near. He knows that. He knows that. And because throughout the Psalms, David calls God his salvation in Psalm 27.1, his rock in Psalm 28.1, his strength and his shield in Psalm 28.7-8, and even his own personal shepherd in Psalm 23. David knows that the Lord is near and that the Lord is for him and loves him. He knows that he's not distant, even if he feels like it in the moment. And so there's an interesting phrase. So David says, God, notice me. God, answer me. God, hear my prayer. And then that second line of verse three, there's an interesting phrase that you need to underline in this your Bible. He says, give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. To us, that sounds strange. But again, we turn to the incredible theologian, John Calvin, and he says this about that verse. He says, to enlighten the eyes signifies the same thing in the Hebrew language as to give the breath of life. To restore the vigor of life, which we appears chiefly in the eyes. So David was asking for endurance. Translated, David was asking for endurance so that he wouldn't die and go under. And his reasoning for that, he says, if God lets him die or lets his enemy triumph, then it'll seem as if God truly was distant. And so David was calling on God to come through. And y'all, I find this so fascinating Because if it were me, and maybe some of y'all, I would pray, Lord, get me out of here. God, take me out of this because I can't bear it any longer. But what David does, yes, David wants freedom from his circumstance. But more importantly, the first thing that he asks for is this. He says, give me endurance. That's a radically different prayer. He says, give me endurance. Give light to my eyes. Give me endurance to make it through. Because y'all, God's desire is not to make our lives easy. His desire is not to make our lives easy. He wants to make our character holy. And the way that we experience the good life in following Jesus is to become like Jesus. And our Father loves us way too much to let us dwell in luxury. And so he will sovereignly allow us to go through difficult things to make us cling to him and to make us like Jesus. And so what I want you to do, uh, mark your place in Psalm 13, and I want you to turn over. We're going to look at a couple different passages in the New Testament. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, it's on page 585 if you're using one of the ESV Pew Bibles. But turn to Hebrews chapter 12. You see, suffering... Suffering is the classroom where God teaches us to depend on nothing but him. 
And so as we turn to Hebrews, um, what you need to know here is the author is explaining uh, what suffering is like and what purpose suffering serves in the life of the Christian. So Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 7, and we're going to go down to verse 11. The author of Hebrews says this. He says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all become partakers, or which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our benefit, so that we may share his holiness. And I love verse 11. In all discipline, all suffering, all trials that the Christian endures, for the moment, it seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But then this next phrase, but to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's a good word. That's a good word. So if you're struggling, if you're undergoing discipline, you can actually take a moment to rejoice that God is disciplining you to make you like his son. If you're going through something right now that you have no idea how to handle, man, that's evidence that God is for you and that he's molding you into the image of his son if you're in Christ. And let me say for a moment, for those of you who are in here and you are not a follower of Jesus, you have not turned from your sin to trust in Christ. If you're experiencing suffering, that is the mercy of God. It doesn't feel like it, but God's giving you an opportunity to turn from your sins to recognize that you need Christ. Because if you're without Christ and you suffer in this life, that's the least of the pain that you're going to experience. Because what awaits the non-believer after this life is eternal hell and separation from God where you're going to be crushed under his wrath. But for the believer, pain it's small. That's why Paul says, for I consider our present suffering is not worth, not even worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us. Take heart. Take heart. So that's what the author communicates to us in Hebrews chapter 12, that discipline is to prove that we're God's children, and number two, to make us like Christ so that we can share in his holiness. And so what I want you to do, uh, turn over um, like a page or two in your Bible. Turn to James chapter 1, next book over. And so James, writing to Christians who are suffering, who are undergoing persecution, who are undergoing hardship, James said this, the half-brother of Jesus, he said this in James chapter 1, starting in verse 2 through verse 4. This is what James says. He says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James said this. He said, if you're going through a trial, count it joy, and then don't ask God to take you out early. He says, let that trial run its course. Let God finish his work, because when he's done, you're going to be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. That's good news. That's good news. Even if your circumstance isn't good and it's, you're in a struggle right now, the reality is this. 
that if you let it run its course, God is going to achieve his goal in you. To make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so turn over one more page, or a couple more pages to the book of 1 Peter. Peter, once again, writing to Christians who are suffering. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, look at verse 6 with me and we'll go to uh, verse 7. Peter says this, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is parable, or which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see a theme? Do you see a pattern throughout the New Testament? We see this theme that, hey, when you're going through trials, rejoice. When you undergo something that you don't know how to handle, rejoice. Why? Because God is achieving his goal in you. To make you like Christ. This language that Peter uses in verse 7 when he talks about even though tested by fire, in his day a goldsmith would take gold. And gold before it's <clears throat> this shiny gold brick, it's actually a, this black chunk of rock. And what the goldsmith does is he puts it in this crucible and he puts the crucible in the fire. And what happens at about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit is all the impurities rise to the top. Then he takes it out of the flames and he brushes off the impurities and what's left is this solid gold brick. And so y'all, when you're going through the trial, when you're in the crucible, when you're suffering and you start seeing the worst parts of you coming out, that is God purifying you so that way when he takes you out of that trial and he shaves off those impurities, what's left is a solid gold brick. Meaning holiness meaning Christ-likeness. That's God's goal for your life. God's will is that you become like Christ. And y'all, if that's God's will for your life, that means you'll find your deepest joy and your greatest happiness in pursuing that will. Even if it means suffering for your life, you can trust that your father knows what he's doing. He loves you too much to not make you into the image of his son. He cares for you too much to not accomplish his goal in your life. And he's going to do it, not even if it requires suffering. It's oftentimes going to be through suffering. Martin Luther, in the 1500s, whenever he rediscovered the gospel and he started proclaiming the gospel. Martin Luther, he's an incredible guy. I heard on a podcast today that in the year one of his children died, he had six children. In the year that one of his children died, he, pre- he preached the most sermons, 200 something to be exact. He knew that God perfects us through suffering. And he said this, whenever he was undergoing persecution from the Roman Catholic Church at the time, Martin Luther said this. He said, quote, I myself owe my papists, the Catholic Church, many thanks for so beating, pressing, and frightening me that through the devil's raging, they have turned me into a fairly good theologian. Driving me to a goal that I should have never reached. And I would add, and that he would have never reached otherwise. It was through that suffering, it was through that persecution that Martin Luther, he says in his own words, became a fairly good theologian. And y'all, it's often in the midst of our suffering that we don't just learn uh, these external facts about God, but that we get to know the personal love and character and nearness of our God. 
Trials and sufferings is exactly how God makes us holy, mature, and praiseworthy for when Christ returns. Charles Spurgeon, uh, incredible pastor, preacher, theologian, uh, he told us one story of an Englishman who brought over a large tree uh, and put it into his greenhouse. And in the greenhouse of the large tree, it actually uh, started wilting and it started suffering because the large tree doesn't do well in a warm climate. So this Englishman, he takes the large tree and he throws it, in uh, Charles Spurgeon's words, onto the dunghill. So he said, this tree is good for nothing and worthless. So he throws it out onto the dunghill, um, which is down this hill, and it's in a cooler area. And over time, it actually grows roots and it thrives. It's interesting because the large tree uh, survives better and actually thrives more in cooler climates. And so it needed the cooler climate and the snow and the rough weather, which produced the right conditions for growth. Spurgeon said this. He said, quote, so it is with true Christianity. It very rarely flourishes so well in the midst of ease and luxury and does great in tribulation. Are you willing to petition for endurance? When you're undergoing suffering, I heard this one quote, that you're either coming out of a trial, going into a trial, or in the middle of a trial. But when that time comes, are you willing to petition God for endurance? It's not wrong to want out of the trial. I totally understand that. David understands that. But what matters more is are you depending on God to give you endurance to make it through? That's what David did in this petition. And so... Let's turn now, turn back to Psalm 13 in your Bible. And so now we're going to move into this final section. Because I told you at the beginning, this is how to move from despair to joy when going through suffering. And David's about to give us the key for how we can actually experience deep joy in the midst of suffering. So look with me at Psalm 13, verse 5. David says this in his prayer to the Lord. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully with me. So we come to this last section of David's prayer, the resolve to trust. So we went from the the despair of our circumstances to the petition for endurance. And now we come to the resolve to trust. And if you notice, verses 5 and 6 is a complete reversal of verses 1 and 2. All of a sudden, the God that felt distant, the God that felt far, the God that seemed silent, over the course of one prayer, David says, I've trusted in his loving kindness. And if your translation might say, I've trusted in his steadfast love. You see, David moved from despair to rejoicing when he anchored his trust in God's character. David moved from despair to rejoicing when he angered his trust, not in the quality of his circumstances, but in the quality of the God who is allowing him to go in these circumstances. It's all about where he anchored his trust. And so that word but in verse 5, it's like a hinge that the door of this prayer turns on. Because David moves from utter despair to singing. He moves from total despair to from sorrows to singing about how good God has been to him. And for some of you, you're in a situation right now where you're wondering, how could I ever praise God for what I'm going through right now? Some of you are in a place where you feel hardened towards the Lord. You're in a place where you feel depths of sorrow that you didn't even know were impossible. And you're wondering, how on earth can I praise God right now? How is that possible? 
Like, I, I know what the Bible says, but that's King David. Like, for me, like, for me, you might be saying, for me personally, I don't know how to praise God like that right now. And the reality, the key, the key to this text is one word in my translation. It's two words in your translation. Two words in your translation. It's the word loving kindness in verse 5. Or in your translation, it might say steadfast love. This is one of those words that in the Hebrew, we don't really have a good English translation for it. Steadfast love is probably the closest. But it's the Hebrew word hesed. And that Hebrew word hesed, it, it talks about um, the commitment and the, specifically the unwavering commitment uh, that people can make to each other or that God can make to his people. And so I want to take you uh, to the left in your Bible to Exodus 34 for just one moment. And so turn to Exodus 34. I want to show you something significant. Because that word has said the best uh, really translation, if we could give it one, would really be something like unwavering commitment. Unwavering commitment, regardless of the circumstances, is really the best way that we could probably translate that. And so look at Exodus 34. And to give you the context, Israel in, cha- in, Israel, in uh, Exodus chapter 32, while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law from God, Israel was literally, they were just brought out of Egypt. God had just saved them, just redeemed them, just did this incredible work in their life. And in Exodus 32, Israel worships a golden calf. So they knew the God who saved them, redeemed them, and rescued them, and they turned their backs and they worshiped a statue made of gold. And you know how God responded? You know how God revealed himself in Exodus 34? Look at verse 6. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, in unwavering commitment, in loving kindness and truth. When Israel had reached the pinnacle of their idolatry, of course they were sinners and they deserved uh, judgment for that. But you know how God responded? I'm unwaveringly committed to you because you're my covenant people. And Christian, when he looks at you and you're going through something that you have no idea how to handle, the message is the same. He is unwaveringly committed to you. And in fact, your heart was in his sights long before you were born. God set his love on you if you're in Christ before the world ever existed when he chose you. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, you don't have to turn there, but I just want you to mark it down and I want you to be aware of what it says. Paul said this, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. He'll perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So what God starts in you, y'all, he's going to finish. What God has spoken will come to pass. The promises that he made, you can take it to the bank. Our God does not fail. He will not fail. And he's unwaveringly committed to you to accomplish his will in your life, to make you like Jesus, and to bring you safely into his kingdom. You can trust your God. It says this in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. It says, And we know that for those who love God, 
All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And 29 verses 29 and verse 30 is the key. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Translated, this means this. That God has made a commitment to you long before you were ever born and he's going to carry out that commitment. He doesn't fail. He's not going to leave you. He's nothing that can separate you if you're in Christ. Nothing can separate you from Christ. It wasn't you who chose him. In fact, he chose you. And because you are the one who is in his hand, nothing can snatch you out of it. It wasn't your decision to go into his hand and it won't be your decision to fall out of it. And even better, nothing in this world can snatch you out of his hand. No circumstance, no cancer, no difficulty, no hardship, no divorce, no adultery. Nothing, nothing can separate you from God's love. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says this. Paul said, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. David recognized that. David recognized that God has committed himself to him in accomplishing his will in his life especially through the suffering that he endures. It's a part of his will for your life. And it's to make you like Christ. And the beautiful thing is that second line of verse 5, David says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David was celebrating the outcome before it ever actually happened. So how sure can you be of God's promises? You can start celebrating before you see it come to pass. That's how good God is. And that's how sure his word is. Because salvation is according to God's word and it's as good as done. And y'all, with these incredible promises of scripture, we can say with David, I will sing to the Lord because he's been good to me. If you know Christ, then God has been immeasurably good to you. That he would pour out his wrath on his son who was sinless instead of you so that way you could enter into a relationship with him. But David... David was only a type of Christ. David, he does set a good example in this psalm of how to endure suffering. But David's suffering and his uh, feeling like he's separated from God, it actually points to the truer and the better David who was actually separated from God. And so in your Bible, one last passage to look at and then we'll close. Turn to Matthew. Turn to the book of Matthew chapter 27. And when you get there, try to find verse 46. You see, David, in the first two verses of this psalm, he talked about how God felt distant from him. He talked about how he felt separated from God. And y'all, what's really interesting is in the book of Psalms, eight psalms later, or excuse me, nine psalms later in Psalm 22, there's another prayer that's prayed that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, David, whenever he prayed those things, He was praying that because that's what he felt like. That's what it felt like in the moment. He felt like he was separated from God. But when you turn to the New Testament and you see Jesus on the cross, whenever he's crucified in Matthew 27, Jesus says this in Matthew 27, 46. 
At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't say that just because that's what he felt. He was actually separated from the goodness of God on the cross. God's love, his kindness, he separated that from his son. So that way Jesus endured the full wrath of God on the cross. David only felt like God was distant. He only felt like he was separated from God. But Jesus actually was. And he did it for you. So that when you endure your most grievous trial, when you're going through what you have no idea how to handle, you can look back on the one who was separated from God so that you could recognize because God turned his face away from Jesus, it was to turn it towards you so that he would never turn it away from you. He's with you. His love is for you. Even when God feels distant, he's not if you're in Christ. That is an unwavering commitment that God would punish his only son so that you could be made right with him. So let me pray and then we'll dismiss to our table groups. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true and trustworthy. Father God, I pray, Lord, for any of my brothers and sisters in this room right now, God, who are suffering. God, who are undergoing something that they have no idea how to handle. God, and they feel like they're trapped in their despair. Father God, I pray that your nearness would be so real to them. God, I pray that they would recognize that your love is for them because your love was demonstrated not through our present circumstances, but through the crucifixion of your son and his resurrection. God, I pray, Lord, for these brothers and sisters who are undergoing trial. God, that they would cling to your word. God, that they would cling to community around them to remind them of the promises of God. Lord, that you are present with them and that you're actually accomplishing your will in their lives by making them like Christ. And so, Father God, I pray that as we go into table groups tonight, God, that you would help us to be real. God, help us to experience transformation through your word and through your spirit. God, that we would learn how to move from despair to trust through a resolve, through a resolve to trust in your character, to produce endurance and to produce joy even in the midst of suffering. Thank you for your word, Lord. We love you and we praise you. Amen.